Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, So I just want to mention something about, uh, because I'm not going to preach on relationships this morning. A lot of times I will on Valentine's weekend. So uh, just, I want to make a couple comments about relationships. Uh, It's interesting, romance, romantic relationships are one of the primary avenues through which God reveals his relationship with us. It really is. Uh, You know, it's similar to our uh, a marriage, we came from God, and God brings us back to himself, reconciling us to himself through the cross. Uh, if you look at the whole idea of a male-female relationship, it's really a fascinating thing. God made Adam, and Adam had something in him that God took out of him, created it to be a separate person from him, gave it its own mind, will, and emotions, called it a woman, and then presented it back to Adam and said, now become one with it. And Adam had to challenge himself to become in union with something that he was already in union with in the first place. God took it out of him, gave him its own opinions, and then said, now get to know this woman and become one with her. And I'm sure after the first argument, Adam had this grand theological question. God, if you wanted me to be one with her, why did you ever take her out of me in the first place? But the answer is this. The reason God took woman out of man is because what God was after was oneness through mutual sacrifice. And so that is the challenge of marriage. That's the challenge of any relationship, but especially marriage. I would, someone just... Uh, passed a test on to me. Uh, how do you love? I've never come across it. I, I got halfway through it and got discouraged. But uh, anyway, it was, it was talking about there are things that show up from our childhood in our marriage relationship that will irritate one another, in a, your, irritate your spouse. It was saying it really doesn't show up in any other relationships. And uh, so I only got halfway through it and thought, I don't know if I want to do this. But uh, it really is. Marriage is one of God's grand discipleship plans. It's the way that God deals with us. He makes you fall in love with someone. He makes you attracted to someone. Fall in love with them. Make a commitment to them. And then you have to deal with you to continue in that relationship. And so uh, I just wanted to encourage you with that. <laughs> I guess that wasn't real encouraging, was it? But anyway, hey, marriage is, is the closest thing to your relationship with God this side of heaven. Or it could be the closest thing to your relationship with hell this side of heaven uh, if you don't do it right. So I just want to encourage you. It is ordained of God. It's the highest form of relationship. And so endeavor to be a good husband and a good wife, especially on today. Amen? All right. I could not believe when Sarah, Sarah, where are you? Sarita. Sarah, where are you? Still here? You out there somewhere? She, uh, she, when she read that verse, here she comes, right there, comes through the door. Uh, I couldn't believe when you read John chapter one, I leaned over to my wife and I said, I'm gonna preach on that this morning. I couldn't believe when she read that. There's a lot of verses she could have pulled from during worship, but God is trying to communicate to us a theme. So let me read you this verse. John chapter one, listen to verse 10 and 11. She emphasized the ones after that, but she did read this. Listen to what it says. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. Isn't that a tragic verse? God created a world. He stepped into that world, and the people he created in that world didn't even know him. 
Then it goes and it adds to this in verse 11. And he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He didn't just come to the world. He came to his own people, the people of Israel, the ones that were supposed to be waiting for a Messiah. Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament says that uh, he is coming. He who is, you've been waiting to see, he, you've been waiting for him. He's going to come. But when he comes, will you receive him? Are you going to be ready for him? They were not ready for him. And uh, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. And I was thinking about that. I was in a conversation early yesterday morning. And uh, just some things in that conversation began to roll around in my heart. And I began to think about how God can come in unrecognizable ways. There are times where God will show up in a way that you may not recognize him. And that needs to cause us to pause. Because we can actually miss God. As a matter of fact, your previous experiences in God... The theology that you have accumulated previously can actually become a hindrance to you receiving God presently. Bill Johnson puts it this way. I I remember hearing him say this years ago, and it really intrigued me, and I believe this is what he was talking about. He said, what you know can keep you from what you need to know. And he's not talking about the lies you believe. He's talking about the truth you've received. You can have truth about God that can actually keep you from further truth about God. Why would that be? Because if you think the truth you have is the total truth, then you will not be open to further truth. And the fact is, every one of us are building a theology. Now, some of us are building a theology on accident, and some of us are building it intentionally. And when you think about the ramifications of that, there is no subject in the universe more important than your view of God. And so we need to be very, very intentional about building a theology. Matter of fact, much of what we call hunger for God is simply curiosity about him. It's this desire to know him more. And we need to have a curious mind when it comes to theological matters. There always needs to be grand questions you're chewing on. When my wife, my bride, my valentine, when the first time we ever met, we met in a frozen yogurt shop. There was a group of us from Bible school, and she reminded me that the, the, I was wrestling with this theological question, did God really die on the cross? And I remember that was burning in my you know, 22-year-old heart, did, and they're saying, well, of course he did. No, no, I know his humanity died, but did God, his divinity die on the cross? You know, I was really consumed with that. I have other questions today. I don't know that I've really answered that one, by the way. But we need to have questions that we're chewing on. Because there's no subject more important than your theology. And we need to realize that your revelation of who he is today will not sustain you tomorrow. The revelation you have of who he is has gotten you this far, but it won't take you any farther. You're going to need to have more of God to go deeper in God. To go into what God has for you in the future, it's going to demand a greater revelation of him. The fact is, for all of eternity, we're going to have to admit that our revelation of God is insufficient. You will never fully grasp God. 
simply because he is infinite and we are finite. There is a never-ending revelation of him. And so that demands humility. It demands that we admit, God, I don't have this whole thing figured out. Now, there are things that the Lord has shown all of us. If you are a believer, there is a base level understanding you have of God. But the fact is, there's always more in God. And that demands a humility that says, my view of God is only partial. And it's insufficient to take me into the future. And the way that God conquers more ground in the world is he conquers more ground in you. And he does that by giving a greater revelation of himself. And he's always pulling us on in this relationship. Now, we could venture into that for Valentine's Day because in a very real sense, the same is true about your spouse. You know that? Gentlemen, let me just break it to you. You will never fully understand your wife. She is probably the closest thing to God this side of heaven. Ladies, you could have said amen on that one. But I'm not talking about her being infant. I'm talking about her being a mystery. <laughs> That's why Peter said, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. What he's saying is for the rest of your life, spend your time getting to know your wife. There are things. My, my wife and I have been married oh, 32 years Huh? <laughs> what? Almost, almost 32 years. And uh, we're, it's going to be 32 years this summer. And uh, there are things I've just discovered about her recently that I thought, man, if I'd have known that a long time ago, that would have helped me. It sure would have helped her. But women are a mystery. And the same is true about our relationship with God, that God will take us deeper in him by a greater revelation of him. If you think you already have God figured out, then you are deceived. It's really that simple. If you think you have God figured out, then you're already deceived. Now, I'm not saying you don't have some revelation. I mean, you got in order to know him, in order to have a relationship with him, you have to have a revelation of the cross. But there's always more in God, and we're going to spend eternity. He's going to be unveiling more and more of himself. And we're going to spend eternity, and God will show a little more of him, and then we'll spend another thousand years just bowing before him. Wow, God, you're awesome. And then when we're done worshiping on that, he'll say, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention this. Well, wow, and we'll spend another thousand years worshiping him. But it's going to be a continual revelation of who he is. And this is one of the reasons that God gave us the Bible. Because the Bible is an objective, unchanging standard by which we can judge our revelation and our experiences. And understand, when I say revelation, I believe in revelation. When, but when I say revelation, I'm not saying that we're adding to the word of God. The word revelation in the New Testament, and it's used numerous times, Paul prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The, the Greek word is apocalypto. It literally means to pull the blankets off of, to pull the covers off of. God's going to reveal something to us we didn't understand before. So revelation is part of a New Testament uh, walk with God. But it's not adding to the word. It's unveiling what's already there. We're not adding to the word. 
And a lot of times when people hear charismatic Pentecostals talk about revelation, they, they'll, they'll lay the charge at someone's feet saying, you're, you think that you're going to add to the word or your revelation is equal to the word. No, it's not equal to the word. We judge our revelation by the word and what we're having revealed to us. God did not lose his voice when he ended his book. God will speak to us, but his voice will never contradict his written word. So we have a subjective relationship with God that's still experiential. God didn't lose his voice. Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. He didn't say, my sheep will know my Bible. Now hopefully they do. But that's not what he said. He said, my sheep will know my voice. But that's a very subjective thing. So we judge what we hear or we think we hear in the voice by what he's already said in the word. And nobody has plumbed the depths of the word. I think I said it Wednesday night. Even Paul did not understand all he wrote. There is no way he could have understood it all. There are layers to the word. Paul had a flash of revelation and put into print what he understood in the moment. C.S. Lewis said that the author of a book is not necessarily more insightful on the subject than the reader. The author just had a flash of revelation, put into print what he understood or she understood, and then the reader brings their experience and their body of knowledge to that, and they may see things that the author didn't. And the same is true of Scripture. But we use the Word of God to judge what we believe God is speaking to us and leading us into. And that's very gracious of the Lord to give us this objective, unchanging standard by which we can judge what he's saying and what he's leading us into. But the fact is that Jesus did, uh, some of you remember Scott Lee. Scott, we've had Scott in a couple of times and Scott, I saw you posted on Facebook the other day. It showed a picture of Jesus teaching his disciples and he said, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna release signs and wonders and miracles and then after I die, just hand out Bibles. And of course it was a sarcastic statement. God never stopped acting supernaturally. It is part of his nature. But he graciously gave us a, a Bible by which we can judge those activities. And we need to be very clear that we judge everything by the word. I was talking about this very thing Wednesday night. And I, I said, there, there are times where I've had, the Lord has spoken things to me that I've not shared because I don't, I don't know how to defend those things in the word. So I hold them very loosely. It's the same voice I've heard speak to me before that was very sure those things came to pass. But until I can show you in the word, I'm just gonna keep those to myself because I take it very seriously, the responsibility to be true to the word. And so our relationship with God demands that we, we humble ourselves and say, God, I, I don't have it all figured out. So we have in this passage that the Messiah came to his own and they didn't recognize him. And we need to be careful that we don't think that that scenario, that dynamic only happened to the Jews back in the ministry of Jesus. That happens a lot. That God acts outside of our theological grid work and we can end up rejecting a move of God. Many of you have heard the phrase, the persecutors of the new move of God are all too often the leaders of the last move. You ever heard that? Something to that effect? Or the leaders of the last move become the persecutors of the next one? 
And it's not that they're ungodly people that have backslid. It's because God moved so powerfully before, we get it fixated in our mind. This is how God operates. And then God works a different way the next time. Isaiah said, behold, I do a new thing. And so we've got to be careful. We've got to hold, hold to our theology in a humble way and say, God, I want you to continue to teach me and continually get in the word. And I'm not talking about just swallowing anything that comes down the pike, but I am talking about our hunger posturing us in such a way that we say, God, whatever you're doing in the earth, I want in on it. And so, Lord, I'm asking God, continue to teach me and lead me and guide me. Because it's a sobering thing that there were men and women that were crying out for the arrival of the Messiah. And they literally rubbed shoulders with him in the marketplace. They heard him teach, but their theology about God caused them to miss God. And it wasn't even necessarily necessarily that their theology was wrong. It was just insufficient. And so we need to really be careful. We're all developing a theology, our grid work of God. And so we need to be careful. Your present view of God is partial, and it always will be throughout all eternity. Furthermore, it is, is, it is insufficient to take you into your new season in the new territory God wants to lead you into. More in God demands more of God. Greater territory gr demands greater revelation. God takes you into situations which will demand a greater revelation of who he is, and this is the way he takes territory, both in you and through you. If you look in scripture, the way that God revealed himself, he didn't reveal himself in a theoretical way. John chapter 7 has a wonderful little verse, little passage there, and it says something to this effect. Those who follow after me shall never walk, it's Jesus speaking, those who follow after me shall never walk in darkness, comma, they shall have the light of life. It's an interesting phrase. What he's saying is that life itself will reveal who he is. See, God doesn't teach us in a theoretical way. The danger is, is that we accumulate our theology, the primary way we create, uh, uh, build our theology is in a setting like this. That our hunger is uh, relegated to the classroom setting rather than taking what we learn in here and having a hunger as we're living life and saying, God, have, keeping that conversation with God all week long, and God, I want to know you. And these new situations place a demand upon our theology. One of the greatest examples of this is Abraham. Remember where Abraham is spending time with the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him and said, Abraham. And he says, yes, Lord, answering the voice of God. He hears that voice. He's excited. Man, Abraham has a history of hearing God. And it's always been this, this unfolding revelation of who God is. And in that day, it said, yes, Lord. And he says, take your son, your only son. And then he adds, the one you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I will show you. I guarantee you he regretted saying yes, Lord, to that one. But Abram, being a man that is hungry after God, it says he arose early that morning. And he told his wife, We're gonna, I'm, I'm going to go make a sacrifice to the Lord. He didn't tell her what it was going to be. And so he went to Mount Moriah. And as they got to the top of the mountain, it says that Abram lifted his hand. His son was bound on the altar. 
And he lifted his hand to plunge the dagger into his chest, and he hears the voice again just in time, Abraham, yes, Lord. And he said, withhold your hand, because now I know you have not withheld from me that which you love. I know that you fear me. And then he says, I have provided myself a lamb. And this was the context of God revealing himself as Jehovah Jireh. It's what we translate as God my provider. That's literally what it meant. But it was God providing in the midst of need. It wasn't some theoretical thing where you're sitting in a classroom and God will provide for all your needs. It was in the middle of this crisis that God revealed himself. It's the light, the light of life. I remember decades ago the Lord speaking to me out of that passage because I went to Bible school. Uh, I was flat broke. They told me I couldn't come unless I could put a large down payment. I had just gotten out of Teen Challenge, went to this one Bible school. My dad dropped me off at the school. They came down for my graduation from Teen Challenge, and everything I owned was in a cardboard box I could hold. I didn't even have blankets or a pillow. And uh, my dad and mom dropped me off at Bible school. My dad said, here, son, give me a $5 bill. I love you. They drove away. Here's everything I own. Cardboard box and a $5 bill. And uh, I started school. And I started working right away in their daycare and, and uh, working my way through school. Well, they were getting ready to close down. And uh, I felt like I was supposed to go to Jimmy Swaggart Bible College. By the way, they almost closed down when I left, too. So no one wanted me to come to their school. But... Uh, so I started praying. I said, I'm going to go. I, man, the Lord told me to go. So I, I write them, and they said, you've got, to have, you know, you've got to have a large down payment. It was probably $1,000, but it might as well have been a million dollars at that time. And I just knew I was supposed to go. So I knew God was going to either give me the money or going to change their mind. And I was walking across a parking lot. I was in this season of just crying out to God. And I felt this tension. It was almost like a rubber band snapped inside of me. And I knew something changed. I got to the church office two minutes later and they said, hey, the college just called. They said, you can come. You just pay as you go. So I went and I'm in school, but I had, you know, I had deadlines for this bill, these bills to be paid. And I would cry out to God and I wouldn't have any money until like the day it's due. It was the craziest thing. And I remember reading George Mueller at that time. And George Mueller said this. How many of you know who George Mueller was? He built orphanages to house these little orphans, but one of the rules he lived by was, I am not gonna tell anybody my need, because he called it a great adventure with God. He wanted to reveal to his contemporary, the people he lived with, that God still answers prayer. So he wouldn't breathe a word, he would just cry out to God, and God brought in literally millions of dollars, You know what would be millions of dollars today to build these these orphanages. It was not uncommon for them to sit down, all these children, for a meal and they had no food. And he'd say, let's thank God for the food. And they'd say, but Brother Mueller, we have no food. And he said, God will provide. And they'd begin to pray, dear Lord, we thank you. There'd be a knock at the door and they'd go to the door and it's, it'd be some guy with a meat truck. Hey, we just, we just lost our axle and uh, all the meat is going to go bad. Could you guys use it? Well, yes, we could. I mean, again and again and again. And George Mueller said of that, he said, it seems as though God has an ocean of supply. But he ekes it out one dropper at a time. <laughs> and God does that to keep us dependent upon himself. And I'm telling you, the revelation you get of God when he does that is glorious 
when he, you see his involvement in your life. And I never had to build millions of dollars of buildings, but I tell you what, when I needed a hundred bucks the next day or I'm getting kicked out of school and a hundred dollars would show up in my mailbox with a little note, chicken scratch note, God told me to give you this. Man, it made God real. It was the light of life. And to this day, man, I was in my early 20s and 10 years later, I mean, it's still, okay, 30 years later, 30 years later, those things are still dear to me. I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. Because I, I knew God as provider, not by reading it in a book, but God made himself real to me. Well, I'm going to tell you, that was, a, that was a hard thing to go through. I'd be get really worried and I'd cry out to God. Then I got to a place where I was worried I was no longer worried. Seriously, I, I thought, Lord, am I being irresponsible? I can't make the money I need, but at least I could worry about it and be responsible, you know. But God was trying to bring me to a place of faith just to believe him. So God wants to give us the light of life. It's not a theoretical classroom. He wants to bring us into those experiences. Listen to Joshua chapter 3. Listen, uh, let's read in verse 1. I want to read to verse, verse 4. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits. Now, cubits about 18 inches, so that's like 3,000 feet or 10 football fields. Right? Yeah, I, I'm, I didn't do well in math. About 10 football fields in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. It's an interesting thing he told them. See, the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. God said, I will dwell between the cherubims on the top of the Ark. He said, I will meet with you there. But when it came time to move, God said, I want you to step back and get some perspective on the Ark. Don't get too close. Step back and get some perspective because you've not gone this way before. That was the explanation on why they needed to follow at a distance. In other words, when it comes time for God to begin to move in a fresh way, you need to step back, get the context, and get some perspective on who he is. Because if you're not careful, you're going to begin to get into the details and miss what God's really doing. You've got to step back and get perspective on what the Lord is doing. In this same passage, Joshua goes out on the plain just before Jordan uh, the, the, uh, the city of Jericho, and he runs into this warrior standing there. He's got his sword, and Joshua asks a very good question. It's the angel of the Lord. And he said, hey, are you for us or for the enemy? And you know what the answer was? No. That's a worrisome answer. He's thinking one or the other. I, I want to know if I need to outrun you or I need to get behind you. And the angel of the Lord said, I am for the Lord. 
said, I am the captain of the Lord's host. And Joshua, being wise, bowed to him and began to worship. You see, the Lord showed up in a way that Joshua didn't understand until that moment. And when he stated it, Joshua then humbled himself before the Lord and began to worship. We see the same thing with John the Beloved in the book of Revelation. John is arguably the closest disciple to Jesus. He was the youngest. He was part of the youth group. And he was the one that sat closest to Jesus at the Last Supper, laid his head on his chest. He could literally hear Jesus' heart beating. That's pretty intimate for two men. This young son in the Lord. But when John the Beloved sees Jesus in heaven, he falls as a dead man because the Lord was showing up in a way he didn't recognize. We see this phenomena happen several times throughout Scripture. We need to understand that he did it back in the Old Covenant. He did it at the beginning of the New Covenant. And he did it in the book of Revelation, wrapping up the book. That God will show up in ways that we do not always recognize. And so we've got to stay humble and ask God, God, I don't want to miss you when you show up next time. I don't want what I know about you to keep me from what I need to know about you. That phrase that I mentioned earlier, that the leaders of the last move are often the persecutors of the next one. I've seen that play out. That people got, that got in on the last revival, or uh, you, you hear people say, you know, they were, they were part of some move of God when they were a child, or they were a young woman or a young man, and they were part of a move of God, and then something fresh breaks out. And often the very people who have been praying for the move of God miss the move of God. One of my heroes, and I won't mention his name out of deference and out of respect for him. He's now with the Lord, and I guarantee you he sees this differently. But he was one of the most influential men of God of the last era. He was known for tremendous moves of the Spirit. And his spiritual sons were the leaders of the very move of God he criticized. And I often look back and I thought, when, when things broke out at Brownsville and things broke out in Toronto, this man took a public stand against him. And had he endorsed those things, more people would have come in through it because they so revered his word. Matter of fact, I talked to one of his spiritual sons that was the leader of one of those moves of God, and he said, one morning, early in the morning, I got a phone call from this man of God. If I said his name, you, everybody here would have heard of him. And he, he picked up the phone and he said, he said the, the revivalist's name, and he said, this is, and he said his name, and he said, yes, sir, and he said, I just want you to know the Lord told me this is of God. He said it kind of begrudgingly. The Lord had to interrupt him, but he never publicly came out for it. And I was stunned, and I asked him, I said, why not? And he said, well, I, I'm not sure. He said, I, I think it because it didn't happen in his church. And to me, it was such a tragic thing. This guy could have really fueled what God was doing in that hour. And he missed out on the early days of that move because it did not fit with his grid work. Now I'm going to add a little more and some of you are going to, if you don't know who I'm talking about, you're going to figure it out. That's between you and Jesus. <laughs> but I remember him criticizing the uh, people getting hit by the power of God and laying on the floor laughing. And he said, why should we laugh when people are going to hell? We should be crying. You see, in his mind, there was only one expression of who God really is. 
And so therefore only one response from the children of God. And because he was one of my heroes and I cut my eye teeth on his writings, I fully agreed with him until God put me on the floor and made me laugh. And the joy of the Lord hit me. There was this controversial expression of who God was. Paul put it this way, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. These two facets, these two expressions of who God is. And we've got to be so very careful that we're not of the sternness camp and only the sternness camp or the kindness camp and only the kindness because we can end up missing God. About 20 years ago, God broke in, 25 years ago now, God broke in in tremendous power. And there was tremendous laughter and the joy of the Lord hit people and, and really set people free. But I'm deeply concerned 25 years later, and I'm telling you, I got in on that move. I was a recipient. It changed my life. But I'm deeply concerned because many of those who were swept up in that move of God are now rejecting anything of the other side of God's character. They don't want to hear about the fear of the Lord. They don't want to hear about suffering. These other things, the other side of God's nature. God's a good father. And one of the primary expressions of the father heart of God is God disciplines those he loves. And discipline hurts for a season, Hebrews 12 says. And the danger is, is that you could have been touched by the Father's heart and, and really receive joy and end up rejecting the Father's heart that exercises discipline in our life. That's why we've got to root things in the Word. It's not our experience that leads us. Our experience can shed light on the Word and, and help us to understand the Word better, but we've got to root it in the Word and understand what the Word says. And so we need both sides of God's character. We need to understand repentance and faith, the, love of, the fear of God and the love of God. And we need, we need to have that balanced view. One of the reasons I'm talking about this this morning is I really do believe that God is going to move in great power in the coming days. But the danger is, is that God often doesn't move the way he did in the last move. And because this church has been so touched by what God did in the previous move, we just may be primary candidates to miss the next one if we don't adjust our hearts. And be careful. And let's, let, let's hold to our theology loosely and hold to the word tightly. And say, God, school us and, and add to our understanding of who you are. I don't want to reject what you're doing. I believe that there's, I heard Winky Prattney. Anybody know who Winky Prattney is? He's one of my heroes. He's still around. Uh, matter of fact, one year, Kathy wrote Winky Prattney and had him call me on Christmas as a Christmas present. Yeah, I, I was so stunned. I wish I'd have 
wrote down questions. I probably sounded like a moron, but uh, I love Winky Prattney. He was, he was, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. Matter of fact, a lot of his books, they're, it, it, instead of saying written by, it's called, it says compiled by Winky Prattney. He has read five to seven books a week for over 50 years. He is like, I heard one guy describe him as a cross between the Library of Congress and a lightning bolt. And uh, he just, he's a hilarious but brilliant man. And he said something very insightful. I remember him saying in 1995, and I've held this tightly. He said, walking with God is a perpetual state of imbalance. He said, walking in general is a perpetual state of imbalance. The only time you're truly Balanced is when you're standing still. You can really see this with children. When children learn to walk, it's clearly a perpetual state of imbalance. They're, oh, and they make it two steps, and then they fall over. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of us walk theologically. We get a revelation, and we want so much of that that we reject the, the imbalance, and boom, we fall over. And what, we've, what we learn to do in maturity is we learn to live in a perpetual state of imbalance. In a very real sense, when you're walking, you're falling over and you're just catching yourself. And we learn to do it gracefully. And so what God does throughout church history and the macro picture and in our personal walk in the micro picture is that he's bringing the pendulum swing. He's bringing attention to what he showed us last time and it'll reveal a facet of our character and then it'll reveal the, the other facet of his character. And as we move with that, he's filling out our theology and we're growing in our understanding of him. And it's, it's our very hunger that causes us to move on in him. And what will cause you to stagnate and become balanced and stand still and no longer grow is a lack of hunger. I heard someone talking recently about a guy, they were talking to a guy, and a guy was saying, listen, I, under, I, I had come to these conclusions 25 years ago, and I have not changed my position on any of them since. And the guy made the comment, what a tragedy, and I have to agree with him. Our theology, our understanding of God always has to be expanding and growing, and, and there are things that unfortunately break the news to you. There's things I preached here 10 years ago that I don't fully agree with yet now. I've, I've changed. I've tweaked that. And I, I hope that five years from now, 10 years from now, I can say, you know what? I've grown and there's things that I would say differently and do differently. There's literally things that I taught 30 years ago at Teen Challenge I've had to repent of because I, I put a heavy yoke on those students because of my perspective in God. And so we need to be always growing in the Lord. Years ago, uh, we've done a, this a couple of times, uh, the parable of the sower. It's a wonderful passage. We need to do another series on that coming up here sometime. But uh, the parable of the sower, you see it in Matthew 13. I want to say it's Mark 4 and Luke 8. Uh, Jesus, it's, it, it's the parable that takes up more material and then all about Jesus' other parables. It's the largest body of material that Jesus taught. And matter of fact, Jesus says of that parable, he said, if you don't understand this, how will you understand my other teaching? In other words, the, the parable of the soils holds the keys to unlock all Jesus' other parables. 
The word parable literally means to throw alongside. The idea is that God's ways are higher than our ways. We, we are spiritually, uh, we don't, we're not insightful spiritually. We don't understand the, the nature of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 13, the parable of the soil is part of the body of teaching in Matthew 13, which is Jesus' theology of the kingdom. And so as we understand that, it unlocks the rest of the parables. And in there, Jesus talked about four types of soil, which represent four types of the human heart. And the, 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 the type of heart we have will determine how much fruitfulness we produce. There is the trodden path here. There's been a lot of traffic on that person's heart. And so when the seed of the word is thrown on their heart, it can't penetrate and get in. And the birds of the air, the demonic spirits come, and it steals it from them. So between what you hear in the sermon and getting to your car, it's taken from you, and that produces no fruit. Now the sobering thing is when Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils, he's talking about people who sit under the word of God. He's not talking about people who don't hear the teaching of the word. He's talking about believers who sit under the preaching of the word. But you can literally sit under the preaching and teaching of the word and remain unchanged because your heart is it's not penetrated by the word. And what Jesus defines, wonderfully, Jesus interprets his own parable for us. And he said it's like, the, it's, it's, it's because they have no understanding. So the idea is that the hardness of heart, it's not able to penetrate. And in order for the word of God to begin to penetrate into your heart, you have to gain some understanding. Now the irony is, in these three passages, you've got to read them all together to get the full picture. Because in one of the passages, Jesus says to his disciples, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given unto you, but not to them. Another passage, we find out the disciples say, well, Jesus, we don't understand, this is a paraphrase, we don't understand what the heck you're talking about. What do you mean by what you're preaching? So Jesus was telling the very people who said, Lord, we don't understand what you're saying. He told them the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. And when he said that, they're probably thinking, well, I wish it would dawn on me because we still have no idea. So what was he talking about? I've heard people preach that as saying, well, there's some that are chosen for revelation and some that are chosen for God to withhold from. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because the disciples to whom he said the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you were as clueless as the rest of the crowd. What set them apart was not some sovereign election, but it was they were unwilling to leave after the message was done. They stuck around and they said, Lord, we sat through the whole lesson and we don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. And then he explained it. Here's the point. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are given to those who are hungry enough to keep asking questions until they understand. And if you are content to sit under the word of God and not understand, then you will be a person who is robbed of everything you're told. Your hunger will cause it to penetrate your heart. And the more valuable the seed, the more questions you'll have to ask. The more valuable the seed, you have to ask and keep on asking, knock and keep on knocking, seek and keep on seeking. 
And so we posture our heart in hunger and the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are given to them. The second type of soil, and we need to understand these soils build one upon the other. There are those who pass the test of the first soil and fail the test of the second soil. The second soil is the stony ground hearer. It has a veneer, if you will, a surface soil, a surface look of fruitfulness. And so the seed goes in, and it looks like it's going to do well because it springs up quickly. But the reason it springs up quickly is because it's putting all its energy going up because it can't go down. Because under the surface are these unyielding stones through which the roots cannot go. And so what happens is the root system reaches out rather than going down. The sun comes out and bakes the soil, it dries it up, and rather than being able to go down and find moisture, because in plant life, a sunny day is what's called a trial in Scripture. The hardship of life. The very thing that makes some plants dry up makes others strong by forcing them to go deep. We live in a housing division that has sprinkler systems. And I have discovered something about a well-watered lawn. A, it's expensive. And B, uh, your root system doesn't go down. My root system is all along the top because my trees have never had to dig down. And I've often wondered, man, that with that derecho, I'm, I was surprised it didn't pull it over. Because the roots never had to look down for water. And so it's talking about those unsurrendered, unyielded areas of our life. There are people who are hungry to understand, but they won't yield. And then there are those who will yield, and they've passed through the first type of soil, the second type of soil, but then we get to the weeds, the thorny soil. And it says that the seed is sown into that soil, and, but there's weeds, there's thorns, and the thorns grow up with the seed. And it chokes them out. It chokes out the word. And Jesus defines those thorns as three things. The cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this world. It's, it's interesting to me that they grow together. The thorns grow with the word. Because there's something about the word. When you apply the word, life begins to work. And all of a sudden, there is a prosperity that happens in your life. Just by obedience, there's a blessing that begins to happen in your life. Before I got saved, I spent all my money on drugs and alcohol. I, I worked. When I was homeless, I still worked two jobs. I was a responsible drug addict. <laughs> I, I, would, I would sleep in a car and then get up early and go to work because I needed money to support my habits. And when I got saved... I was making very little money, but I started accumulating some. I thought, wow, you know what? When you're not buying, spending all your money on alcohol, I didn't get a driver's license until I was 21. You know why? Because I didn't want to spend the money on a license. I thought, 10 bucks is a good drunk. I'm not going to spend that. All of a sudden, it started accumulating things. It grows up with the word, but it will choke out the word. It says the concerns, the worries of this life the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this world will literally choke out what God is beginning to show you. 
And so we've got to fight those things. There are people who will endure the trials, the sun-baked land. There are people who will pass the test of hardship but fail the test of pleasure. I have a good friend that has prayed for years, Lord, don't bless me any more than I can handle. I just decided I'm gonna pray, God, help me handle a lot. <laughs> yeah. Make me the kind of person that can handle things. But the fact is, God's a good father. And the, the, the very blessing of God can become a barrier to him if we're not careful. And then the third type of soil is the good soil that brings 30, 60, and 100-fold harvest. We grow into that thing. But there's four stages. Let me, let me read this to you. I was because we gotta close in four minutes. The process of revelation. This is where I was going with all that. It's fascinating to me. I was studying this years ago and got on that theological resource called Wikipedia. And uh, I was looking at how seeds work. Listen to this. There are four stages. Sowing, germination, establishment, and fruitfulness. And it fits right with the parable of the soil. Sowing the word. This is the present, presenting the word with understanding. It's crucial that we understand. If you don't understand what's being said, it'll have no effect on your life. If the hearer has no understanding, the seed of revelation will die. Germination. Okay, this is fascinating. You think, what is a seed? A seed is a little self-contained pocket of life. It has a plant in it, but a seed also has all of its own nutrients to get through the first stage of its growth called germination. It begins with the breaking of the shell, which kickstarts this process called germination, and that stage ends with the root and the shoot emerging, okay? So the idea is this, that, a, that a, a seed has its own built-in reserves of food that will carry it through that first stage. And so the plant, what happens, there's two ways a seed will break open. The most common is that water comes. You can have a seed that is centuries old. They, they found rice in the pyramids that were in little vials, thousands of years old, planted it, and it brought forth fruit. It's an amazing thing. But what happens is it has to be exposed to moisture. And so the, the, the seed coat will soak in the moisture, and the inside of the seed will grow larger than its container, and it breaks it. And that kickstarts the process called germination. And then that little emerging seed will begin to eat all of its food sources contained within that little seed. It feeds on itself until it has a little tiny root and a little tiny shoot that pokes above the surface. And that begins the sec that next stage called establishment. And an establishment is where the idea of photosynthesis begins. Photosynthesis is where now that seed has depleted all its own reserves. It can no longer feed upon itself. It now has to feed upon its environment. So it's going down for water and it's going up to catch the sun. And it begins to grow into the next stage called fruitfulness. Now the word photosynthesis is an interesting word. Photo means light. It's where we get the word light. Sin means with, and thesis is idea. So I want you to think about this. 
light with idea. See, the first stage of any revelation is germination. When, you ever noticed how when God's speaking to you about something, it is everything? It's like this is the answer to everything, to all the world. I'm tell, I, I, saw, I saw what the cross means. Someone comes to you for marriage counseling. You just need to know about the cross. They have financial problems. You just need to know about the cross. They, it's everything. You're just feeding on that thing, and it becomes everything. And we've got to be very careful that we, might, we don't fail to mine out everything that God is showing to us. Let me present to you a teacher we've had come through here many times. He's an apostolic leader from the Philippines and one of our external overseers by the name of Paul Yadao. When we were in the Philippines, that's when we got stuck in Guam, hallelujah. It, uh, what, I, was, I preached at his, the home work, their, their, the, the mothership of all their, their movement, and it happens to be on a college campus. On this college campus is the largest seed bank in the world. They have seeds from all over the world in this vault, and the woman who holds the key goes to his church. And the Lord told me to release a word to them, and it was this, that it is not a coincidence that you, your ministry was started on the campus of the largest seed vault in the world, and that a woman in this congregation holds the key because you have been very good at stewarding the word. And if you've ever heard Paul speak, you know that he gets everything he can out of a seed. I mean, he'll just extract every, I love to hear him teach. And when I hear Paul teach, I will teach for weeks afterwards out of just a, a little nugget from him because there's so much in it. If you really want to grow in the word, when God begins to talk to you, keep getting something out of that. One time when I was preaching out of this passage, the Lord spoke to me during the week and he said, David, there are people sitting under your teaching that get more out of it than you do. And it wasn't a commendation, it was a rebuke. What he was telling me is that I get in a hurry because I've got to move on and study, study for the next week and I'm not getting what I should out of the word. We need to get everything we can out of what God's speaking to us. But when you come to the end, the next stage, and a lot of people fail to do this, you need to now take photosynthesis. Take the light you got, sin with, and fold it into the other ideas God has shown you. And let it become incorporated into your theology. And imbalance, theological imbalance, is the failure to do that very thing. That what God shows you becomes everything, and Everything is seen through that lens, and you've got to fold it into your theology. God is building a theology in our hearts. He'll take you through experiences. He'll take you through situations where the only thing that's going to carry you through is a revelation of him, and you feed on that thing, and it becomes everything to you for a season. And anybody that talks to you, that's what you're, they're going to get. But eventually, it needs to become part of the body of your theology, a fixture in your theology so that you, you're expanding in your revelation of him. That's the way theology is established in your life. And that's the way you really become fruitful and not imbalanced. There's a move of God coming to planet earth. And I am determined that we will not miss it. 
But we've got to stay humble and say, God, we want to understand the next thing you're doing. And Lord, if you show up in a way that is unfamiliar to us, Lord, please show us in your word so that we'll stick to your word and welcome what you're doing. Because I don't want to stand on the outside looking in and critiquing what God is doing. I don't want to rub shoulders with the Messiah in the marketplace and not even recognize him. The verse that Sarah read this morning, that was from the Lord. And it is one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. She emphasized the, the part after that. That was good. But I'm telling you, that is a tragic verse. And it's not an isolated situation in human history. So let's keep our hearts hungry and say, God, the next thing you're doing, I want in. Lord, I want to receive everything that you, I want to receive the blessings and I want to receive the discipline. I want to receive the glorious things and I want to receive those things that make me uncomfortable and have to let things go. Lord, I want all of you. I don't want to just pick and choose my theology and eventually I create a God in my own image rather than yielding to the God who created me in his. Amen? Let's stand. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. You are good. You're a good father. And Lord, we say yes to you. Lord, even when we don't know what you're going to do next, because we trust you, you're a good father. And Lord, I'm asking God, we just humble ourselves before you this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to Always walk with you. We don't want to plateau. We don't want to reject something you're doing. Lord, forgive us for those times where we criticized other servants because we didn't understand what you were doing in them, through them. Lord, we ask your forgiveness. Father, we want to bless what you're doing. We want to do what you're doing. Say what you're saying. And Lord, when we're unsure, keep our mouths shut. Hallelujah. Lord, we say yes. Lord, wherever you need to correct us, tweak us, we say yes, Lord. You are Lord and we are not. We thank you for your book, an objective reality that we can turn to again and again and judge our own experiences. Thank you, Lord. But Lord, I also thank you that you are a God of experience. And they who follow after you will never walk in darkness because they will have the light of life. You forbade us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you welcome us, Lord, to eat from Calvary, the tree of life. Hallelujah. Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com/give.